It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Primo of Detroit, hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey. Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretz. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretz. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretz. Come on. Big Gretz and this bitch playing no roles. At Excuse all. all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretz said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Gretz ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we gonna take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Uh-oh. Big Grits got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Grits with the bucks on on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on their pair of bucks with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Gretch.
They've seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer at the New Yorker with a new book called Lost and Found, and it's um, being called uh, her new memoir, and I'm going to ask her about that and much, much more. Her name is Catherine Schultz, and she joins me by phone. Catherine, good morning, and welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me on. Um, when do you know that it's time to write a memoir? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, well, you know, if you'd asked me before I had this book idea, I would have said, I, I guess, never. I mean, I certainly wasn't planning to write one, and uh, I, you know, most of my work is as a journalist, and I'm, I'm writing about other people's lives, not my own. So this was something of a surprise. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was a very happy surprise, and it really did come to me uh, kind of whole cloth. I had the idea for the book, uh, and I knew right away exactly how it worked and exactly how it was structured, and that, that felt like a real gift as a writer. So I knew, you know, why did I want to write a memoir? Not so much because I was eager to talk about my own life, but because I felt that I could use these two episodes from my own life, this experience of losing my father and finding my soulmate, as it were, in, in quite quick succession. I, I, I felt I could use these to explore these broader categories that were really interesting to me, these questions about all the things we lose in life and all the things we find in life. And I think it's because those personal stories felt like they, they were a way to address these universal experiences. That's what made it really exciting for me. How did it occur to you to blend... Um, the things that are lost and the things that are found in a way that includes these big life-altering things like the loss of, of a loved one or family member and the loss of uh, your car keys? You know, it's a good question, kind of how my mind got there. Minds are very mysterious. <laughs> Who knows exactly how we have the ideas we have. But I will say that that was the that was the attraction from the very beginning. You know, not long after my father died, I began thinking about this very strange fact that we we speak of losing our loved ones, and yet we also speak of losing, you know, a sock in the washing machine and losing our cell phones and our car keys and and losing elections and losing our faith and losing our minds. And I thought, gosh, what a weird category. You know, is this just a linguistic coincidence that we talk about all these things the same way or or is it meaningful you know is there something that these kinds of losses actually have in common that can help us understand the experience of loss in general or help us understand the experience of life in general uh, and and same thing for finding things you know we find totally trivial things you know four leaf clovers and, and pennies on the sidewalk uh, but we also find the love of our life and we find meaning and we find god and we find happiness and I, I was very interested in whether these small losses and small discoveries can teach us anything about the big ones, and, and vice versa. And so that was kind of the motivating question behind writing the book. Is there a, a, an emotional thread that, that um, binds all loss? I think that there is, you know, and I think that that thread is loss of control. Uh, because ah. even even when you lose something totally irrelevant, you know, you pick up a pencil and you're writing something in a in a book and, or a notebook, and you get interrupted, and then next thing you know, you're searching through your couch cushions. <laughs> you know, it's it doesn't matter. You don't need the pencil. It's not a valuable object. It's nothing at all like losing a loved one or or, or even losing something of a material object of greater value. But what these things have in common is they are these little reminders that we are. We are not able to control everything in our environment, and let alone 
you know, everything in the cosmos. And they remind us, I think, of the way that ultimately, you know, things things do tend toward disorder. Entropy is a real thing. Loss is really omnipresent in our life at every scale. And so all of them are these, these tiny lessons in accepting the fact that everything we have is transient. Everything we have is fleeting. And I guess, you know, that that's the that's the sobering way to say it, the uplifting way to say it, which is where I ultimately land, is they are all tiny lessons in uh, or, or, or tiny reminders to be attentive to what we have while we have it and grateful for what we have while we have it. How much of of your feelings about loss were informed by your father? I think they probably were to a very great degree. Uh, my dad was such an interesting guy. You know, I think part of why uh, I, I was drawn to using his death as an opportunity to write about this larger category of loss is that in, in really interesting ways, my father kind of embodied every part of that category. You know, for me, of course, after he died, he embodied the real emotional heart of that category, this experience of losing someone we love. But his life story also really gets at uh, some of the, the, the truly most extreme forms of loss anyone can endure. My father, uh, by, by the time he could walk, had lost the vast majority of his family members in Auschwitz, uh, and, and he came to this country as a Jewish refugee. So he also experienced all of these um, kind of canonical losses of, of exile, you know, losing a homeland, losing a native language, losing an entire culture. Uh, and, and his family was very, very poor, so he suffered the kinds of losses we associate with, with want and deprivation. Uh, on the other hand, my father, by, by, by coincidence or otherwise, uh, also exemplified the really trivial end of the, of the category of losing things because... You know, my dad was absolutely brilliant. He spoke six languages. English was the last one he learned. He was incredibly fluent in it. Uh, he had a, an almost perfect memory. He was unbelievably astute about the world, except for when it came to things like, you know, the whereabouts of his car keys. Or <laughs> you know, my dad just could not keep track of any. He was a classic absent-minded professor. You know, six times a day, you know, where's my wallet? You know, has anyone seen my shoes? And and so in this, in this wonderful way... Um, he taught me a lot about the range of loss, uh, but, but probably most importantly, he taught me how to have equanimity in the face of loss, you know, and, and to, to grieve appropriately when, when the world pains you or when you see other people suffering and to acknowledge the enormity of loss in our lives. And yet, you know, despite his very difficult childhood, despite being exposed to enormous amounts of trauma and violence, my dad emerged as an incredibly joyful and kind and compassionate person who, who brought a huge amount of kind of curiosity uh, and, and, and delight to life. And so I do think I learned from him that, you know, losses, uh, when they are devastating, they, 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 they merit our, our attention, of course, but many of them aren't devastating. And, and my dad, you know, who lost six things a day, uh, did it all with, <laughs> with tremendous good cheer and with a sense of like, well, you know, who really needed those nice sunglasses anyway? <laughs> oh, that's funny. More with essayist and author Catherine Schultz straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Thompson Objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with essayist and author Catherine Schultz straight ahead. Is there a reciprocity between um, losing something and finding something? In, in other words, can you learn from loss to appreciate things that you might find? I think so, for sure. I mean, to begin with, we occasionally find things we previously lost. You know, you you, you well, yeah. lose a you know journal in childhood, and it turns up in a box in your sister's attic thirty years later, or you lose that wallet, and you're so grateful because it turns out it's still sitting there, completely intact, at the restaurant that where you left it. And and of course, in those moments, we experience you know gratitude and and sometimes kind of amazement, right, and appreciation. Uh, so I, I do think our losses. Um, teach us about our finds, but I also think they both tend to teach us the same kinds of lessons. I mean, when you find something um, unexpected, so not, not, not the sock that you lost in the washing machine that finally turns up, but uh, uh, something you, you never expected to, you know, a, a, a dinosaur fossil in your backyard or, uh, you know, a, a, a rare book in a junk shop, whatever it may be, you have a little bit of a of the same sense you have when you lose something, which is that you're not in control, right? The only difference is it's a really wonderful feeling. Instead of feeling like the universe has robbed you, you feel like the universe has rewarded you, and and that there are these forces at work that are that are beyond you, and occasionally those forces are are benevolent, you know, and they're they're showering you with some really unexpected delight. So I think that um, yes, losing teaches us about finding, but I also tend to think that losing and finding uh, really ultimately teach us the same lesson, which is at, at heart a lesson about gratitude. And and maybe about our own powerlessness? I think that's right. You know, I mean, powerlessness is, is, is very strong. Yeah. I don't mean it, to suggest you know, we're, we're, you know, absolutely without agency in our lives in wonderful ways we are, including because, of course, we have the power to search for things. And sometimes we, we discover incredible things by by searching for them, whether that's, um, you know, an archaeological find or an idea or a medical discovery. We, we do a lot of, of things under our own power, which are really wonderful. But you're certainly right that, um, you know, there are limits to our agency in life. And there are things that happen that are out of our control. And some of those things are very, very difficult and very upsetting. And some of those things are absolutely wonderful and amazing. I mean, anyone who's ever fallen in love, uh, you know, it has had the experience of, of finding that, you know, the, the world presented them with something wonderful they couldn't have engineered into being. You know, we we don't control who we fall in love with. We don't control even, you know, necessarily who we meet. And and, and every love story, or almost every love story, is a story about something happening that, that you didn't necessarily intend to have happen, you know, some, some other human being crossing your path and, and transforming your life entirely and, and for the better. So there's no question that, that loss of control characterizes both of these, and I guess I would just say that we tend to have negative associations with that idea, and yet very often it's quite wonderful that we don't actually get to engineer our entire fate. How do we know? Um, that that something we've found has significant value to us. When we lose something, we already had it. We know what we lost. But how do we figure out how we've gained by what we've found? 
Well, I think it really depends on the on the discovery. You know, if if you do have sure. that experience of you know meeting a stranger and falling in love, you know right away like this is the most wonderful thing I've ever found. You know, and and occasionally we find things that are obviously valuable. You know, you like are walking back to your car in the the, the grocery store parking lot, and you look down and there's a hundred dollar bill at your feet. You know that there's no there's no question that's a valuable that's a valuable item. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting to me about finding is that. I think most of us experience it as really wonderful and delightful, even when there actually isn't much value to whatever we find. Um, you know, I write about this a little bit in the book, but it, it's it's very interesting when you think about the games that the children play and that we play with children. They almost all hinge on the idea of finding something. You know, in hide and seek, you find another person. Uh, in in the famous license plate game that that parents play with their kids to keep them entertained in long car trips, you know, is there something valuable about a South Dakota license plate, you know, well, not really, right? But it's very valuable when, you know, your kids have found the other 49 and one of them finally spots one. It's delightful. It's joyful. So there's something simply about the experience of discovery, even if there's no value associated with the object, that is valuable. It is a little jolt of joy all in and of itself. And then any extra value it might have, whether that's material value because you happen to find something really, you know, uh, rare and wonderful um, or, or emotional value because you find something you know, like, uh, you know, like, like a meaningful career or like faith in God or someone you love, uh, you know, those have obviously a, a powerful emotional value. But in general, I think we, we kind of love the experience almost no matter what. What kind of research did you do for this book in in how did you go about deciding what things to include? I know there are two big events, um, one on the lost side, one on the on the found side, but with all the other information that went into it, how did you select those things? Yeah, it's such a good question. So I had a pretty um, narrow set of constraints for myself, which was basically, is this going to expand our understanding of the experience of loss or grief or the experience of finding or falling in love? Those those were kind of the, 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 the litmus test for, like, does this belong in the book or not? Uh, so I read very widely and researched very widely before sitting down to write, but, you know, whether or not something made it into the final book really depended on, you know, does that, does it serve this set of ideas in some way, shape, or form? So, for instance, I read an entire book uh, in, the, in the course of thinking about writing this one. It's really fun and interesting. It's a book called Lost Person Behavior, uh, which is mm-hmm. exactly what it sounds like. It's about how people behave when they get lost. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which turns out to be very different depending on on who it is. You know, these are these are uh, books that that are resources for you know search and rescue crews and and, and folks like that who want to know like, well, what what does a four year old typically do when they get lost versus what does someone with Alzheimer's typically do when they get lost? This was all unbelievably fascinating, but I can tell you not a word of it made it into the final book because ultimately <laughs> I felt that getting lost ourselves uh, was not was not close enough to the experience of losing something to merit a spot in this book. So that's how research goes. You know, sometimes you read something fascinating and you're dying to include it, and at the end of the day you think, well, 
that's lovely, but it's going to feel like a 40-page tangent, and I want this book to be focused and, and have momentum and for readers to trust that, you know, everything is here for a good reason that's serving these big ideas. How can you remain focused and lose things? <laughs> me or anybody <laughs> well it just it just seems funny to think in terms of you know we we think of losing things as being sort of absent-minded and yet you're trying to um inject you know a lot of focus into this book and this this mm. material and it, it just seems funny well, that you... the two things you know exist side by side yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And in fact, I think a really interesting thing about focus is that um, it comes at a cost, which is, you know, I actually suspect that a very common time to lose something is when you're very, very focused on something else. You know, focus requires a, a narrowness of, of attention. And so if you are on an incredibly important phone call, you know, you're uh, you're, you're hoping to get a job and you thought you'd done the final round of interviews and you're... Um, you know, standing there in the parking lot after running an errand and your phone rings and it's the, you know, the boss of the guy you interviewed with who just has a few more questions for you and you are, you just suddenly you go into like, you know, hyper-focus mode and you're being very professional and you're thinking about this job you really want and you're focused on the questions and you're doing your best to answer as well as you can and you get off the phone and it went incredibly well and you lock your keys in your car. Well, of course you did, or your right? Car. <laughs> because you were focused on this other thing. So, it, you know, it's one of the funny things about, about losing something. We often, um, there's a lot of self-recrimination involved when we, we know that we are the person who lost something. You know, we tend to blame ourselves. And especially, of course, if that item is valuable or difficult to replace or expensive to replace. Uh, and yet, you know, I, we should go easy on, on ourselves for that kind of blame because it's often the case that what happened is we actually were paying attention. We were just paying just attention to something else. I, I actually lost my car once. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, no, I, I'm going to ask the question. <laughs> I, I was, I was, um, uh, where was I? Downtown Milwaukee, I think. And I parked to get out and go to a few shops. And then I went to a few more shops and a few more shops. And before I knew it, I had no idea where I was in Milwaukee or where my car was. You know, there seemed no direct route back. I ended up having to take a cab and cruise around downtown to find my car. And and it was well, just I'm very confident to hear that. It was just it was just absent mindedness. I mean I don't do things like that a lot, but in this particular thing it just seemed so natural. I parked my car in a you know, in a regular legal parking spot and thought, well, I'll just walk over here to this shop. And then I went around the corner to another shop. Next thing I know, I'm 10 blocks away and I don't know which way the blocks go. <laughs> it was, it was a strange day. Well, I can really sympathize. You know, it's very funny, but the, the first section of this book, the lost section, uh, grew out of an essay I wrote uh, not long after my father died that was partly an elegy to him, but partly about uh, this, this kind of larger category of loss and all these different things we can lose. And that essay starts out in a very comic vein, um, and it begins, actually, with the story of me losing, you think losing a car is bad, it begins with the story of me losing a pickup truck, a, a truly, like, ginormous pickup truck, 
uh, in, in downtown Portland, Oregon, a city I know very, very well. So if it's any comfort, you're not at all alone. It is strangely possible to lose things even as large as, you know, a Ford F-150. Oh, that's funny. What are you hoping um, people will get out of this book? This sounds like things that are very personal to you. What do you think other people can, how can other people benefit from these things that have happened in your life? Well, you know, you're certainly right that the, the, the specific details of the stories I'm telling are, are extremely personal to me. Uh, and yet, you know, a, a reality of life is that we are all going to grieve someone we love. Uh, and I, I hope we all have the opportunity to fall in love as well. And so, you know, as, as much as these are intimate stories I'm telling, they're representative of extremely universal experiences. And I could tell you, you know, what I, what I hope for, for my readers, but um, it, to be honest, what, what's most striking to me now that the book has been out in the world a, a, a few months and I've had a chance to hear from readers, it's, I'm, so, I'm so gratified and so moved. I mean, I, I hear from readers who want to tell me about you know, the loss of their own father or mother or partner, or they want to tell me they love the love story. They've been married 49 years. They're still dancing in the kitchen. You know, I, I think there's something we, we all like to know that we are not alone in these experiences. And I feel that my job as a writer is to, with as much precision as possible, um, give, give words to these experiences and give people uh, new languages and new ideas for thinking about things that are as as personal to them uh, as these stories are to me. And I hope ultimately um, to give them some joy. The, the most gratifying thing I've heard from readers is like, oh, I picked this up expecting a grief memoir and I uh, I laughed so much and I, I, I put it down just feeling real joy and hope about the world, which I think especially in this moment is, is something we all could stand to have more of and it's certainly what i what i set out to do in writing it I, there's a reason the love story comes after the grief story in this book it, it's the the trajectory of the book is is towards joy and and toward happiness and i do hope that's what readers find in it what kinds of things do you typically uh write working for the new yorker it sounds like you have a <laughs> it sounds like you have a tremendous amount of freedom I do, and I can't begin to tell you how grateful I am for it. I love my job, and I love my editors, and one of the many things I love about them uh, is that they they really do um, give us free reign to explore the ideas that interest us, and I think they understand that people write best about the things they're most passionate about. Um, and so, you know, in a very wonderful way, I... Uh, I there's there's no consistent way to describe what it is I write about. I was originally hired as a book critic, um, and I do still uh, do a fair amount of writing about books, or at least writing that that takes uh, that takes new works of fiction or nonfiction as as a kind of starting place of an essay. Um, but I also, you know, I love science writing, so I've I've written for the magazine about uh, seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. I've written about the um, brown marmorated stink bug and invasive and and really nasty little. Species uh, that I cohabit with every day, unfortunately. Uh, I've written about the history of Muslim immigrants in Wyoming. Uh, so I really do have, I just wrote a piece right now about shipping containers of all things. <laughs> so uh, I, I do have a lot of leeway. Uh, and I, Talk about I, lost I, and found. 
I know, Pacific <laughs> containers, it's true. I, you know, whatever, however however you might have lost your latest object, uh, you can take comfort from the fact that it probably didn't go overboard on a, on a container ship in the middle of the Atlantic, never to be seen again. But I know it's incredible how many things we lose in the ocean every year. Oh, that's fascinating. So what's next for you? That's a good question. Uh, right now, I'm I'm really enjoying uh, just helping to usher this book into the world and, uh, and and hoping to you know continue to meet its readers and and get a chance to talk to them and talk about the book. So that's still taking up a lot of my time. Uh, do you enjoy delightful. that part of it, uh, Catherine? The the I do. interacting with people because for a lot of writers, it's a very solitary thing. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy it, and I'm really grateful for it. I mean, for one thing, it, it feels to me like a lovely kind of counterbalance uh, to the act of writing, which is, uh, as, as you know, very solitary uh, and um, sometimes, some, sometimes even lonely. I'm lucky. I, I live with a my, my partner's a writer as well, and so that cuts against the solitude to a considerable degree. But you know, writing is is, is quite a um, quiet and private process for the most part, and it's wonderful on the other end of that to to go out into the world. And, and get to talk to readers, and I just, you know, it, it continues to amaze and delight me that everywhere you go in this country, there are people who want to spend their Monday evening or their Wednesday evening or their Sunday afternoon uh, going somewhere and, and sitting around and talking about books and talking about ideas. To me, that's that's beautiful, and I'm so grateful to them, and I, uh, yes, I, I, I love getting to meet those folks and talk with them. So what... Uh and I cut you off, and I apologize um, on your way to what's next. Oh, uh, well, if you mean in terms of a writing project, uh, I'm not exactly sure. I am happy after a pretty long book leave to be back at the magazine, so I think for the immediate future uh, we can expect just a series of um, magazine articles, uh, as, as you note, about a highly unpredictable range of topics. Uh, I will say only that I have arson on my mind these days, so eventually readers can maybe look for something like that. <laughs> but uh, but I certainly, in terms of a, in terms of a next book, I, I have no idea. My guess is it will be it will be a good long while. I'm really enjoying this thing for now. Boy, that sounded almost like a power pop song from the '60s. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've got arson on my mind. <laughs> Boy, that is not something that anyone has ever said to me. But I'll sure I'll I'll, I'll try to be more um, more more uh, lyrical and musical in my in my statements. What a wonderful compliment, <laughs> um, Catherine. I really appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners this morning and sharing your thoughts um, and and the things that you share in your writing all the time. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? I do. It's my full name, com, and you can learn quite a bit more about the book there uh, and, and where I'm traveling and so on and so forth. Uh, and my work can all be found, other than the book, the rest of my work can all be found uh, at The New Yorker. Uh, and I do have a currently slightly neglected Twitter account, which is also just my full name, Catherine Schultz. Well, Catherine, thanks so much, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care now. That was uh, Catherine Schultz from uh, the New Yorker magazine, and um, she is a Pulitzer Prize winner. 
and author of a uh, new book called Lost and Found that um, actually stems uh, from a 2017 New Yorker essay, When Things Go Missing. And uh, very interesting stuff. And with that, we're going to take... Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program. Wash my hands. I don't touch my face. I stay at home. Shelter in place Social distance Don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves Stay away from church I avoid old folks And should I sneeze I do it in my elbow Heart. That is the room, and I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors And I'm sick of what I see Two more weeks of quarantine Will be the death of me The death of me I risk a trip To the grocery store To buy TV and a few things more But when I get there All I can find Is 16 honey buns And some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. Yeah, two more weeks of this quarantine's gonna be the death of me. The death of me. You know, they say this is war. But we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Porkchop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, Yes, dear. Yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, Honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. 
Of course, I immediately apologized as soon as I regained consciousness. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not, is a major factor in dancing like a retard, may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them, also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people, and it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons. (laughs) This day will go down in history as precedent-shattering. John Bickerson is smiling. Despite the lateness of the hour, the fact that he has had perhaps the hardest day of his life at the office, John Bickerson is smiling. Why? Tell us, John. Two weeks vacation with pay. Wait till I tell Blanche, brother, how I've longed for this. I'll sew myself into the bed sheets and sleep for ten days. John? Hello, Blanche. How is my beautiful wife? What? Would you like me to bring you a glass of milk and a cookie? And here's a little present for you. You look wonderful, honey. Oh, this is awful. What's the matter? This morning I burned my hand on the stove. I ripped my only pair of nylons. My inlay fell out, and now you come home drunk. What are you talking about? I'm not drunk and you know it. Then why are you so nice to me? What's the use? When I come home tired, can't smile, she beefs. When I come home and try to be pleasant, she accuses me. Put out the lights. You're not going to bed with your shoes on. Yes, I am. I work like a horse. I might as well sleep like a horse. Why did you bring me a present? What have you been up to, John? Bring his wife a present. Oh, stop it. A husband doesn't bring his wife a present unless he's done something wrong. I've brought you a million presents and I've never done anything wrong. Never. Not since the day I married you. I wish you'd let me sleep. Sure. Sleep. That's the easiest way out when you've got a guilty conscience. Blanche, I tell you, I haven't got a guilty conscience. Then why did you buy me an expensive present? It isn't an expensive present. It's the crummiest present I could find. I could believe that, all right. What is it? Why don't you open it and see? I bet you've gone and thrown away your money on some stupid thing I can't even use. Oh, you can use it fine. A home beauty outfit. It's got everything, just what you need. Wrinkle cream, freckle remover, hair darkener, false eyelashes, chin reducing strap. What kind of a present do you call this? What are you hinting at? How did I know what was in it? Nobody would use this but a homely woman. Oh, that's not true. All women use it. They do not. Only the homely ones and I wouldn't touch it. The sales girl in the drugstore said she uses it all the time, and she's not half as homely as you are. What? I mean, you're just as pretty. And that's just about what happened. You walked into a drugstore, saw a pretty face, and didn't know what you were buying. I didn't look at her face at all. If you were going to buy me a present, why didn't you buy me something I could use? Why didn't you get me an ounce of taboo? What's that? My favorite perfume. Well, you've got a dresser full of perfume. Taboo, Sabu, Snafu, Sterno. Enough perfume for any woman alive. Look at those bottles. They're all empty, and it's all your fault. You left the corks out, and it evaporated. I leave the cork out of my bourbon, don't I? Well, what about it? That never evaporates. You never give it a chance. I don't see why I should have to do without because of your nasty habits. What do you think makes a thing dry up, John? Wish I knew. Don't be so funny. 
Oh, I'm not funny. I'm sleepy. You know I worked at the office 18 hours without a let up. That's what you said you did. That's what I did. I did it for what I thought was a good reason, but now I'm sorry. Why? Forget it. What is it, John? What happened? (gasps) You lost your job. I didn't lose my job. I got two weeks vacation with pay. It's the first vacation I've had in seven years, and I wanted to enjoy it. But no, you wouldn't stand for that, would you? How can you say that, John? Of course I want you to enjoy yourself. Where's the money? In my wallet. Two whole weeks pay. Now, do you mind if I rest? You know, John, I haven't had a vacation either. A change of scene will do us both a world of good. If you're so tired, there's only one thing in the world for you to do. He's doing it. Where did he say that money was? Oh, here it is. Two weeks' pay. Blanche, put that money back. Oh, I I thought you were sleeping, dear. What were you doing with that money? What's the matter, Blanche? I'm not doing anything. I'm just counting it to see if they gave you the right amount. It's the right amount. Put it back and go to sleep. You needn't talk like that. I wasn't going to steal it. Who said you were? Just like you to make a crack like that. I didn't make any cracks at all. Go on. Call the police. Have me arrested. Put me in prison. Nobody's putting you in prison. They'll lock me up in solitary confinement. Rats running all over me in my cell. And I stand helpless, shaking, behind iron bars. No way to escape. Blanche. Oh, why don't you send me a hacksaw, John? You're getting hysterical. Well, don't go accusing me of taking your money. It's half mine anyway. It's all yours. All I want is sleep. I don't see why we can't go away on a vacation for a few days. You go. I told you I'm going to do nothing but sleep for the whole two weeks. You'll have to get up sometime. Not even once. How are you going to collect your unemployment insurance? What unemployment insurance? You're going to be out of work for two weeks. You can't collect unemployment insurance if you've got a job. If you're not working, you haven't got a job, have you? That's different. Why? I don't know why. Nobody does it, that's all. Well, what's the good of unemployment insurance if you don't get any money when you're unemployed? Being on vacation is not the same as being unemployed. Don't tell me. What? Clara's husband, Barney, has never had a job his whole life, and he collects his unemployment check every week. He can't collect any checks if he doesn't work. I thought you said they only pay you when you don't work. That's right. But you have to work before you can be out of work so you have a legitimate claim for the money you earned that you don't get. I don't get it. Oh, leave me alone. And I'm telling you now, John, you've got two weeks off and you're going to do one of two things. Do you hear me? I hear you. Either you start collecting your unemployment insurance or else you fill in those two weeks with another job. Another job? This is my vacation. I don't care. It won't hurt you to work those two weeks. And we could use the money. Okay, I'll get another job in the morning. You say it, but you won't do it. Do it now. What? Go on. Get up. Get a job, you loafer. What kind of a job can I get at 2 o'clock in the morning? What's the matter with being a night watchman? I won't do it. I won't do it. You've got no right to deprive me of my two weeks off. I don't care what happens. I won't get another job. All right, then. Promise you'll take me away on a vacation. There's no way out. I promise. Will you swear? Every minute that we're away. I know where we'll go. Lake Tahoe. 
I'll only have to buy a few more dresses and you can wear your dungarees all the time. Okay. Just tell them you came in from fishing. And if it gets cold, I've got just the thing. Let me show you what I picked up on sale yesterday. I don't want to see it. Just look at this, John. Isn't it stunning? What's so stunning about a bath rug? It's a fur cape, silly. Well, where's the fur? Well, that's the way it's supposed to look. It's the very latest style. Sheared beaver. Sheared beaver? It's been clipped. So have I. You have not. This is worth every penny, John. You know I'm a good judge of furs. Oh, sure. The past two years you bought a bald mink and a plucked skunk. Well, what's wrong with them? The mink stinks and the skunk shrunk. Blanche, how much did you pay for this one? Only $94. $94? Oh, Blanche, you didn't. Get that money back, you hear me? Get that money back. Don't get hysterical. As soon as the... Blanche, how could you do this to me? I deny myself everything. I've been sewing heels on your old pocketbooks and wearing them for shoes. I've been eating the padding out of my overcoat shoulders to save on breakfast cereal. I don't even drink my bourbon anymore. I just chew the cork and hit myself on the head with the bottle. I never spend a nickel on myself. You bought a bag of popcorn yesterday. That wasn't popcorn. My teeth fell out from malnutrition. I'm warning you, Blanche. Blanche, you're not going to get away with it. What do you want? Hello, Bickerson. This is Mr. Guernsey. Yes. uh, Oh, hello, Mr. Guernsey. I hate to be calling you at this hour, Bickerson, but something very urgent has come up. What happened? I just received word that our Chicago plant burned down, and we weren't covered. This morning, I filed bankruptcy proceedings, and I'm closing up for good. What? I trust you'll find a new position, and I do wish you good luck. Well, uh, thanks. By the way, Bickerson, would you mind sending back that two-week salary I gave you? I need every penny I can scrape together. Yeah, um, sure, I'll send it. Uh, goodbye. Well, did you hear that, Blanche? No, what was it? My boss, Mr. Guernsey, I lost my job. (gasps) Wonderful! Wonderful? What's so wonderful about it? Now you can collect your unemployment insurance. Oh, Blanche. Good night, John. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. 
If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the lesson to dry a super bad, transmittable. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.